Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Eno Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to The History of Being Black. I am still black and I am still your hostess, Eunice Elliott. And as always, when you tune in for a tantalizing episode, I'm always joined by some dynamic, amazing black person. And you know, this week is no different. This week, I am joined by Michelle Coles. Uh, First of all, welcome to the show. Before I even start trying to get into all the wonderful things you do, Michelle, welcome to The History of Being Black. Thank you so much, Eunice. Thanks for having me. So you are one of those folks, I like to call folks multi-hyphenates, meaning you don't just do one thing well, you do several things well. But if you were to meet someone, how would you introduce yourself? Like, what do you lead with, with all of the things that you do? I lead with, I'm a mom of four boys, and um, I'm a wife and a civil rights attorney. Okay, so I love that you started with the mom first. Yes, most important job. And I forget now, because my book's coming out in a couple of weeks, I'm a soon-to-be author. I like Sometimes I even forget to add that to my name. But yes, I'm also an author. Well, I was going to remind you, because uh, we're going to talk about your book, but I wanted to say, like when you first introduce yourself as a mom, obviously being any type of attorney takes, uh, you know, is, is very impressive. But to be a civil rights attorney, it also sounds impressive and probably somewhat stressful. So can you tell me, were you a civil rights attorney before you became a mom or vice versa or, or or simultaneously because I think as being a black woman a mother of four black sons in America you have a unique and and, and sensitive connection to the to the fight absolutely um, I was a civil rights attorney before I was a mom um, I had been an attorney for um, maybe about eight years before I had my first son and um, had been a civil rights attorney for maybe only about three years. So not that, not as far in the past before I had my first son, but the things that I saw out in the field scared me for his future um, growing up in America as a, as a black boy, um, because I worked on a lot of juvenile uh, justice cases and I helped kids that were involved in the juvenile justice system, make sure that they got the due process rights that they were entitled to. And I also um, looked at how they were treated when they were incarcerated. And so um, so I just saw, I saw a lot of kids that were kind of being moved through the school to prison pipeline and their normal, um, you know, childhood indiscretions and misbehavior in school was being criminalized. And so that was, that was something that alarmed me, um, you know, as a, thinking about having children in the future and then once I had kids. Can you speak more about that? When you say the school to prison pipeline, you kind of touched on it about how, you know, a kid just being a, a challenged kid in school now becoming a criminal because they get put in that system. Can you, if someone has never heard the term school to prison pipeline, tell us more about what that is and how prevalent it is in our country. 
Yeah, I mean, it is definitely prevalent, and especially in um, places where you have higher poverty and, you know, more minority students. And um, there, I mean, there are a lot of ways, some it can just be school discipline issues where they're involving the, um, you know, the police, the school resource officers that are assigned to the school, and all of a sudden situations are escalating where something that should have been a, a trip to the principal office becomes a trip to a, a jail. And another way is that um, kids that are already involved in the juvenile justice system, maybe for something that took place off campus, not at their school whatsoever, they, um, if they get in trouble in school, that could be a violation of a condition that they already had on them for being in the, in the juvenile justice system. And that can also re result in them being incarcerated. So those are kind of some of the most common ways that I would see kids would do something in a school setting and, um, you know, and it would result in incarceration or further contacts with the juvenile justice system. And I think most of us can think back to some student or some, you know, a kid we grew up with that, fell victim to that, you know, that was um, maybe having some challenges at home and then got into the system. And the way the American criminal justice system is set up, it's kind of set up to keep you in it. Would you think, would you say as a, as a civil rights attorney, that's just my opinion, but, but tell me about once a, a kid gets in the system, how hard it is to actually get out and be a fruitful American. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, um, it's definitely hard to turn that corner. Because for one thing, once you get involved in the system, it, it means you start missing school. And the more you mm -hmm. miss school, the harder it is to make good grades. And if you're not making good grades, then you know, your options are dwindling and you're more likely to get in trouble again because you don't have the options and opportunities of kids that are doing well. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the kids that are getting involved in the system maybe don't have already the structures in place at home that are going to help make sure that they're doing their homework and, you know, staying on the right path. And so, you know, it's being involved in the system is also going to expose them to different types of influences that, you know, are going to persuade them to possibly do more activities that are going to keep getting them in trouble. So I think it can, it can be a path that can be hard to get off of unless they have an adult that cares about them, that's able to step in and help redirect their energy and put them, you know, back on a, on a good track. So with your professional work and then also being a mom of four sons, as an African-American, as a Black person in America, we have to have the talk with our kids. Uh, has the talk with your sons uh, been influenced specifically by your point of reference and, and professionalism and, and, and what all you know, in addition to what we just have to talk to, um, to our kids all the time? So our oldest uh, son is eight years old. And okay. so we have been you know, gradually expo exposing them to issues like, you know, justice and, uh, you know, trying to show them positive role models and things like that. But we have kind of made a deliberate decision to keep them somewhat sheltered because we know they only have a certain amount of time where they can, you know, embrace their childhood innocently. And interesting enough, COVID has almost played into that sheltering aspect because now we are at home so much more with just each other. And so, um, and so they haven't had, you know, as many outside interactions that have raised questions and opportunities where we felt like we've had to address certain things. Now, there are definitely certain things that they've seen that we've had to, you know, talk about things that, that might be on the news if we're watching the news and we might have to explain why, you know, that was immoral or unjust or things like that. 
but I think we're, we're waiting for them to be a little older, but we do, we read to them all the time. And so we try to expose them to their blackness through beauty and through, you know, art and through different things to celebrate. And so they don't, you know, we don't want them feeling like being black is a, is a burden, um, you know? And so we're trying to, you know, read books to them and show them characters and show them things so that they can explore a positive identity um, before they have to, you know, also really understand um, some of the handicaps and realities that they'll face as black men. So you said you, you have four sons. I didn't know how old your kids were. So now that you say your oldest is eight, Michelle, you got four boys <laughs> and the oldest one is eight. Yeah. Yeah. I have an eight-year-old, six-year-old, four-year-old and one-year-old. Okay. So my hat was already off to you, but I see I need to grab some more hats and just start talking <laughs> superwoman. Okay. Thank you do you. that then. <laughs> so let me ask you, when you're when we're talking about civil rights, I think a lot of times people think that that's something of the past. We talk about the civil rights movement and we are still so in the struggle, but not so much in a movement. I think last year, obviously the new conversations was started. Give me your perspective on where where is the lull in the movement when we talk about civil rights, especially today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like one of the one of the pieces that we're missing is the understanding of the history, um, because I feel like when, when you study history, it's almost like you're studying the future. You know, it's like it gives you insights from looking at the past and you can start to see patterns and start to see how things repeat. And and I feel like if you have a good understanding of the history, you're more prepared to face the battles of today. And so that was one of the things I was really hoping to accomplish when I wrote my book, Black Was the Ink. Um, and, you know, and it takes a modern teenage boy on this fantastical journey to reconstruction era America. And, you know, very similarly to moments that we've been in recently, you know, I wanted to put the reader in the shoes of black people as they were emerging from slavery and, and think about all the hope they must have had of the possibilities that lay before them. And, you know, the opportunity to reunite as families that had been separated during slavery and the chance to, you know, own land and make sure that your sweat equity that went into your land uh, benefited you and your family, as opposed to someone else when you were working all day long and um, their excitement about about political engagement and being able to vote. And, um, you know, so all of these and education was another big thing that I that I think they were excited about with so many historically black colleges and universities that were being founded in that period. And, and so it was just like an explosion of, of hope and opportunity and possibilities. But there was the the backlash. And it was, you know, a campaign of domestic terrorism and violence that that crushed that momentum and that possibility and that moment for uh, all those people. And there were, you know, four million people that were freed from slavery. And so um, we saw a complete change in the direction of the country at the end of the Reconstruction period, going into the Jim Crow era that lasted for 100 years. And when I started writing Black Was the Ink, it was 2015. And I think I, like a lot of other people in this country, I think we were in a pretty hopeful place at that moment um, because, you know, we had our first black president and, um, you know, it seemed like race relations were making some progress. 
And for me, what kind of shook, shook me out of that reality was the Mother Emanuel massacre. Um, mm. And and when that, you know, when that happened, it was like, oh, my gosh, these demons aren't dead. You know, they they may be buried, they may be asleep, but they are not dead and they can rise up at any moment and show their their ugliness in their face. And and so that's that's what motivated me to write this book, because I felt like we were in a very similar moment that the people were in that were emerging from slavery until that backlash occurred. And, you know, I think we saw in the, you know, in the years that followed that a very a similar type of backlash. But as we stand at, at this moment today, I think we owe it to ourselves to try to figure out how do we make sure that history doesn't fully repeat and that we don't end up in another hundred years of jar of darkness where we don't have political representation and, you know, all the progress that we have made since the civil rights movement is not unwound. Um, and so, so that's, you know, that's where I think uh, it's helpful to look at the history and let it inform us so we can figure out how we can make different decisions and have better outcomes. So in the beginning uh, of our conversation, you forgot to mention that you're an author, but then you jumped ahead before I can ask you about Black was the Ink. Now, that, this is your debut uh, effort, and it's beautiful. Um, so when you say you started writing it in 2015, and it's coming out in November 2021, tell me about the process of putting this together, because I think when we're thinking about stories, I don't know that... I know I wouldn't have thought to have a young man go back to this fantasy world during Reconstruction era. Like, you know, where where does that come from? And what was the process from 2015 to it coming out in a couple of weeks? Um, so, I mean, it was it was it was an arduous process. It involved a lot of research, writing a lot of drafts, editing a lot of drafts. Um, so I started writing it in the summer of 2015. And I probably spent about six months just trying to get a grasp of the Reconstruction era. And, you know, it was the Mother Emanuel massacre that motivated me to tell the story. I was on maternity leave with my second son at the time. And I felt like if I'm going to raise Black kids in this world, in this America, I need them to understand the context when things like this happen. And uh, when I looked into the history of the church, I learned that it was founded by Denmark Vesey in like 1818, um, 1817, right around there. And he uh, was the leader of one of the uh, largest attempted slave revolts in the country. Um, he, you know, it was attempted. He was found out. Him and all his co-conspirators were executed. But after that, and he was the founder of Mother Emanuel Church. And then after that, uh, South Carolina passed a law that made it illegal for any slaves to, you know, have a church worship together because they realized they were using the church to organize and mm -hmm. find ways to resist um, slavery. And um, so the church met in secret all the way up until the end of the civil war. And then they built a brick and mortar structure for the first time. And the pastor that led the church in the reconstruction era was a man named Richard Kane. And he was also one of the first black members of Congress. And so that was fascinating to me. And that's when I started thinking about like the possibilities and, you know, the, what, what those people must have been feeling and experiencing emerging from slavery after generations. Um, and then I saw that, you know, Booker T. Washington spoke at the church and Coretta Scott King led a protest from the church's steps all the way up to when the massacre occurred, the pastor of the church was Clementa Pinckney. And he was also a sitting South Carolina senator, state senator. And, um, and so, and so when I kind of looked at history, just through the lens or through the eyes of the church, I saw this like incredible uh, trajectory of oppression and resistance, just kind of like battling each other over the years. And so I wanted to weave together 
a story that could, um, you know, that could convey that and, and also show um, just that it wasn't as long ago as we, we sometimes think it is. And right. yeah. And so, and, you know, in the story, Malcolm um, interacts with different generations of his family and he sees how uh, racism and oppression has intersected and affected different generations, but he also sees how they have resisted and overcome. And so that was a really important um, part of the story and in a way that Malcolm could grow and find his own, you know, voice and power. So when you're writing a book like that, how do you know when you're done? Did you already know the, the end of the story before you started? Because it could be this rabbit hole of what to include, what to leave out. Yeah. So many stories from that time. And then that you can have this fantasy world involving history and current day. How do you how did you know you were done with, with Black Wolf Inc.? Well, um, I think partly because of my law background, I'm very big into outlining. That helps me a lot um, with just kind of knowing generally where I want to go because it can feel very overwhelming if you say I want to write a book and then you're like, ah, it's, you know, 300 pages. I can't write 300 pages. But uh, but once I once I started working with like a very high level outline and then breaking my outline into even like smaller pieces and bite sized pieces, I could look at a bird's eye view and see my whole story and and think about, you know, how how it flows. And then I could break off some of those bite sized pieces and just work on them in isolation. And so I might have like, uh, you know, chapter one and I might have a sentence saying this is going to happen in chapter one. And I would start writing and I would actually have no idea how I was going to accomplish what I said was going to happen in that sentence. Um, but, but something about the creative process, sometimes you'll just get inspired, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you have a muse or whatever. And so when I would just start writing, like the story would just flow. And then I would look up and have a couple of pages and I, and I had done what I'd set out to do. Now it still had to go through a ton of edits. So I'm not trying to say first draft was perfect. It was far from perfect, but it was the, you know, it was the first step to get, to get the ideas down. Um, I, I wrote with a lot of dialogue. Dialogue felt very natural to me as a way to, um, you know, convey thoughts and feelings. And so, um, you know, so it's, people have told me it's a very easy book to read because it is almost like watching a movie because um, there is so much dialogue and, and action in it. So being a mom who has given birth several times, what is it like to give birth to a book that now the world is going to consume all of your hard work? What is the emotion uh, just a few weeks prior to the release of this, this passion sounds like passion project? It has been a passion project. It's, it's so exciting. I can't believe like how long it, it's been since I first started. And when I told you the ages of my boys, my second one, I was on maternity leave with my second son. And so he's six now. So I always know how long I've been working on it because I've been working on it at the same age as, uh -huh. as my second son. And it's so exciting. Um, and I think probably the best part is when I, today I actually had a couple of school visits that I did and um, I met with kids who had already started reading it and they were, they saw themselves in Malcolm and they were so excited about the story and their teachers told me it was so rare for them to be able to read a book that they could relate to and that they felt like, you know, was speaking to them. And it just brought tears to my eyes because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad 
that um, that they will enjoy this and will be able to learn this history um, in just a pleasurable, enjoyable, relatable way. So it feels great. Well, congratulations in advance. I'm sure it's going to do exactly what you have dreamed it would do. And, and beyond Malcolm and what the students I can imagine get excited about, it's exciting to be able to see Michelle Coles as the author. I mean, growing up, I don't remember seeing authors that looked like me. Right. So um, is that part of when you're thinking about promoting the book and, and, and getting the book out there, uh, do you give any pause to seeing a, a, a Black woman a professional black woman, a mother, you fit so many categories to say, hey, you too could write a book. Yes, I've definitely been trying to, you know, encourage them and give them tips and, you know, just just have them believe in the uniqueness of their voice, because we all have our own experiences and our own stories and something, you know, that only we can contribute. And so I'm definitely trying to impart them with that message. I can't remember ever meeting an author, period. Uh, until a couple of years ago, once I got on this journey, and I remember, um, you know, I had been writing my book for like a year or two, and I was at I was at some event, some happy hour or something, and met a black woman author for the first time. And I was like, starstruck. I was like, you really exist. I didn't know. And now I've been so blessed since, um, since I, you know, been working on like the marketing and promotion of my book that I've just come across so many amazing black women authors. And it's a whole community um, that are all having just incredible debuts coming out one after another. And it's so exciting to kind of be in that moment and be able to cheer them on and them cheer me on and so it's um it's awesome it's a whole new community so here for uh, the history of being black we always ask our guests to leave us with uh action items now now you you are a busy woman i'm just so impressed that you know of all the things you have going on you still have the ability to create and then still put new new uh, wonderfulness out into the world beyond your professionalism beyond being a wife and a mom so when we have our listeners uh, stop listening to each episode. We like to challenge them to be the change they would like to see. We say hashtag be the change. So if you had to offer us something that as soon as we stop listening to this episode that we can be activated to go do right here today, what would you offer our listeners? Hmm. There's a, I could think of a couple of things. Um, I mean, I would say just speak up you know, use your voice. Like you have got an important message, important experiences to share. And whether that's writing a letter um, and these are, you know, these are a couple of things that I've done in the past month because there've just been situations that have gotten me infuriated where I'm like, I can't stay silent anymore. And so in the last month I wrote an op-ed to my newspaper um, over, you know, some foolishness where there was a school board member where my kids go to school who was raising money, trying to fundraise off of unmask our kids. And I'm, you know, in the middle of the pandemic and I'm like, no, that's not what we're, that's not what we're going to do, you know? And so it's like a lot of us, I think, um, have strong opinions and have strong feelings, but I feel like we talk amongst ourselves, whether that's on social media and, you know, responding to a tweet or, you know, talking to our girlfriends, but I think we need to be more deliberate about using our voices in spaces that can make a real difference. And so, you know, if that's, if something's upsetting to you, write, take a moment and write that letter to your newspaper. Uh, a week after, a couple weeks after that, I spoke at um, the school board meeting for the first time. I never, I never attended a school board meeting before. Um, and it was a little intimidating. It's like, okay, I don't, you know, I don't 
I don't really, I don't feel comfortable because I've never done this before. But after I did it, I was like, I'm never missing another school board meeting again. And there was nobody other than me saying the things that I was saying, but I know that other people feel the way that I do. And so I would say, if you feel really passionate about something, like find that space where you can actually influence policy to try to make that difference. Okay, so I don't know how to endorse that, Michelle, because everybody don't have your energy, ma'am. I mean, now she's going to school board meetings. Okay, <laughs> you know, my husband every day is like, "Have a seat, Michelle. Have a seat." Seeing <laughs> too much, seeing too much, but I love it because you activating your voice and you are being the change. And so I love to see it. Uh, but we are tired. We, we're tired just listening to you. So Black was the Ink is coming out in November. Congratulations in advance. Uh, so make sure uh, all listeners go support Black was the Ink. Michelle, uh, when we have guests, we always kind of get it on tape that you will become a friend of the program. So hopefully we'll be able to reach out to you in the future and have more conversations with you. We really enjoyed it today. And, and I'm sure you will have done a lot more things. <laughs> Thank you. Can I can I just add, and, and I just followed you on Instagram, by the way, but if, if folks want to keep up with me, please check out my website. It's uh, www.michellecoles.com. And I have all my social media things on there if you guys want to follow me. So I'm, I'm always doing lots of interesting things on, on Instagram to help share Black history. Thank and you. I do believe you. Thank you for sharing yes. that. We will definitely follow you You're back. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you so much. <laughs> Team too much doing the most. I'm into it. Hashtag be the change. Hashtag doing the most. All of the above. Thanks again so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening to another episode of The History of Being Black. Until next time, make sure you take care of yourselves and we'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.